Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Braden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. All right, so it might be helpful to recap a few things, since, you know, actually, it's just good to recap anyway, uh, along the way. As we've talked about Romans 8 so far, we've only gotten through, technically we got to verse 9 and touched on verse 9, but we're going to touch on it again uh, tonight in the, as we go forward. And some of the themes you've already brought up will be brought up again this week and the next week, hopefully with greater clarity as the goal. But so far in Romans 8, we've seen a few things that what Paul has done. What we've seen him do is introduce this big, magnificent statement for up front in Romans 8.1, which is one of those verses like I've encouraged before that you should like just kind of like memorize, commit to memory, stamp it on your heart. There is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's, that's an awesome, like, what a gift that if you are in Christ, you get to know the final verdict that is in the future into the present. Like, it's been brought into the present. You can know that you have no condemnation. You stand justified, acquitted, and free in Christ. And then we talked about how that's been done because the, the law of the life-giving spirit, this is verses 2, 3, and 4, the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Something we talked about that was important there back then was how what Paul does with these concepts, if you want to call them, of sin and death is he kind of personifies them. What that means is he makes them as if they are living, breathing, animate, like beings in a sense. Personification was really common in that day and age. And so it, this was happen that happened in the Hebrew Bible too. So even in the Old Testament, concepts, especially like death, was given a persona. It was treated like a spiritual enemy that was more than just some, again, intellectual concept. It was an actual enemy that needed to be defeated. And Paul even picks up this later in, like, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'd word it as, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Well, that's not something you treat of a, just an idea or a concept or something that's not alive. So personification happens even in Romans 8, of what we've seen so far. Again, I would just encourage you to listen back to the previous ones if uh, you need to. But as, as it comes into the, what we talked about last week, verses 5 through 9... Romans 8 are when we see Paul do this really stark contrast between uh, the flesh and the spirit. And he makes this, again, big dividing line, line in the sand. You are not in both. It's, you're not oscillating between the flesh and the spirit. As much as sometimes the language you might personally use or you've heard use in Christian circles, and we'll talk about that, we'll clarify that even more tonight. But what Paul says is like, no, no, no. These are two like completely opposite ways of living, and you are only in one. You are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. 
And so that's why in verse 9, if we just want to read that again, it says, now you. And in the Greek text, it's emphatic. He, he fronts this. He puts an additional pronoun that you don't have to put, by the way. He, he doubles up to make sure you see this very clearly. Now you, you are not in the flesh, but rather you are in the spirit. After all, the spirit of God dwells at home in you. And as I was thinking about this, uh, before we get more into the material for tonight, I was thinking about our conversation from last week and how we see similar content in Galatians chapter 5. And they both discuss the contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Think about it this way. I was talking this through with someone uh, yesterday. Romans was written about 10, 15 years, somewhere in there, later than Galatians. Okay? And Paul's position doesn't change in between now and then. Rather, he doubles down and clarifies what he means. So if you're familiar with Galatians 5, you'll be especially tracking with what I mean here. But just to paraphrase, like, yes, the desires of the flesh and the spirit are against each other. And sometimes we act in ways that looks like we're living in the flesh, but we're not in the flesh. So we are in the spirit. And so this is part of the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. And so even in Galatians chapter 5, though, Paul does not say that you are in the flesh. He never says that your flesh is waging war against the spirit. He says the flesh wages war against the spirit and its desires does. So it simply talks about the way the flesh wages war against us in those desires. So that's an enemy that's outside of you, not inside of you. Does that make sense? In fact, in Galatians 5.24, if you needed just to write down this reference, it goes as far to say this, that we Christians, quote, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, wait a second here. Either Paul is contradicting himself or he actually means what he says. And it's all just contributing to what we are saying in Romans 8. So in, again, in Galatians 5.24, he goes as far to say that you, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this sort of tension in the important, careful nuance that we need to come to the discussion with will hopefully come into a greater clarity tonight. And frankly, even next week's content has some of this too. So now let's, uh, let's talk about this, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Uh, this is kind of a subtle turning point in the chapter because after describing this contrast between the flesh and the spirit from just like this objective point of view that you are now in the spirit, Paul makes this change. And what he's doing here is, uh, have you heard that like famous axiom, knowledge is power? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. I agree. And I think Paul would too. Because what he's trying to do is show them that Christians ought to know who they are in light of who they belong to. And moreover than that, like, if you want to press that harder, like, in light of who now indwells them. Because look at that end of verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. After all, the Spirit of God dwells at home in you. And so there's a turning point here to where he's, late, he's made his point about you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. And now he wants the grand theme to be more about what this, like, life in the Spirit, like, or even not just life in the Spirit, but the life of the Spirit dwelling in you looks like. So we're going to start to see that transition take place in Romans chapter 8. Again, some similar themes are still going to come up today and the next week, but you're going to see that move forward as well. I think sometimes as Christians, we'll talk about this almost like schizophrenia, you know, and this is not a helpful way to think about it, as if somehow we are uh, both in the flesh and in the spirit. And if I think I've been clear that that's simply not the case, according to Paul. It's an incredibly important distinction, and I think the trap also could then be to say, cool, we're not in the flesh, and then to get 
out of touch with reality that we sometimes, I don't know about you, I'll be the first one to say, sometimes definitely live with behaviors and actions that act like the flesh. So it's not to say that, that's, that there isn't still temptation and that there aren't still ways in which uh, we act in a way that is part of the old life or governed by that, the flesh in any sort of way. It's just to say that that isn't who you are now. That's not the governing ruling power within you now, even if you fall prey to that. This is the next thing on your handout, and this is one way I really want to talk about it. Uh, it, this will make more sense over time, of course, but sin is not like a pet you tame. It's a wild, hostile animal that you put to death before it kills you. Sin is not a pet you tame. It's a wild, hostile animal that you put to death before it kills you. We'll see Paul continue to make sense of what I'm just elaborating on here, but I think that's why Paul is drawing such a stark contrast. Instead of just, like, the reason why this is so important for him to get across that you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, is because sometimes in complacency or even taking for granted what the gospel has now done in our life, we can treat sin as like, well, it doesn't matter then. Grace, right? God forgives. It's all good. I can live however the heck I want. No, if you, your relationship to sin has completely changed as well. And so in light of that, don't treat sin like some sort of pet that you can, it's okay, like I just need a, a, a behavior management, I need to tame this pet, train it how to, so we can cooperate with each other. No, like it, it, it's a wild, hostile animal. Like if you were in the wild and you saw like a bear coming at you, you're not going to try to tame that bear. You're, it, it's either you or the bear. Something's got to happen. And whatever animal you want to fit in that imagery is kind of the case uh, for this. So I think that's going to be an important way to think about it as we move forward. Okay, so let's read uh, verses 9 through 11, and let's talk some more about it. I know verse 9, again, we've read a few times. Why not read it again? Now you are not in the flesh, but rather you are in the Spirit. After all, the Spirit of God dwells at home in you. But if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that's interesting, this one does not belong to him. Now since Christ is in you, interesting, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And since the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells at home in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will bring new life to your mortal bodies through his indwelling spirit in you. Now, all this talk about sin so far is important because I want to make clear that Paul has a very high view of the body. Uh, after all, we live as embodied people. So as we discussed last week, and I'm not going to comment on this too much, flesh isn't a pejorative way of talking about your physical body. Flesh is his way of talking about and just using a word picture for the old, corrupted sin nature, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would even say that the Spirit has, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Raises us from death to life. Well, yeah, but like what, when you kick someone out of a vacancy of a place? Eviction. Thank you, evicted. The Holy Spirit indwelling, in a sense, has evicted that nature, technically, like, I think that's part of the point. It's like you don't have this dual nature inside of you. Yes, you, you give into the desires of the flesh, even though the flesh isn't inside of you governing you. Mm -hmm. That's a really big distinction, by the way. And it's, a, I feel like a lot of things in theology and in like biblical like exegesis and as you study scripture, it takes careful nuance sometimes when you're thinking through these things. Because like it's, 
it's not so simple as to say you're a dual-natured person. I think that's against what Paul would say. And it's not to say either that, okay, you have the Spirit in you, therefore there's no such thing as fleshly desires. No, it's just that there are fleshly desires, but those di desires aren't the governing ruling power inside of you, nor are they the governing ruling power waging war within you in the same way that you, they both have a vacancy inside of you. The Holy Spirit isn't vacant in you in, in, in the flesh vacant in you in a way that's like, oh, look at that weird battle within. The battle is within, but in a very, 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 very different way. Because you can give in to desires that's, that are coming from without. That's why the enemy is outside of you. And yes, you, we do give in to those desires, but it's not a governing force within you. Really careful difference. I, I think practically, play, let me say it this way, it practically plays out a lot of how I think a lot of us would talk about it. So I wouldn't disagree with like the sentiment of how Christians often talk about these things, but I just, I feel like it's important to also become precise on some of those. Yeah, so, so again, my point is that having these really stark contrasts, these dichotomies, are very common in Scripture. So Paul's not doing something weird here. We just have to pay attention to what that dichotomy means. So in this case, with this stark contrast, flesh-spirit, of course, doesn't mean you don't sin, doesn't mean you don't fall temptation desire. It just means that, that there isn't a flesh <laughs> oh gosh, how do I say this without stomping on a ton of toes? Thank you. Okay, your nature's changed. Yeah. You don't have a sin nature inside of you. You fall prey to sin. Right. But as a Christian, there isn't a, you aren't that dual nature person. And I, I will never like be that guy who's going to stand up and correct someone when they're like talking about it. Because again, I agree with the sentiment that people are saying. But since I kind of have the floor here and in this setting, we can talk through that more and like talk about it. I think it's important to see that. Well, and so going back to knowledge is power, right? If knowledge is power, wouldn't the enemy want nothing more than for you to think you are just some worthless sinner that, thank goodness that Jesus uh, is covering your sins and forgiving you? And that, there's, a, the enemy works so connivingly because a lot of that's true. We, we were sinners who Jesus has forgiven and by no merit of what I've done and by no merit does it even sustain. Like I don't even sustain my salvation. Jesus saved me. He sustains me and he will save me with all that, like all that future redemption that still lies true. So like this is not taking any spotlight off Jesus. If anything, actually, I want to brighten the light, turn it up even more and say that what he has done has effectively done more than sometimes we give credence to. And that's because by the indwelling spirit, in this case, in Romans 8, calling it the spirit of Christ, which is kind of cool, the spirit of Christ being in you, Paul, Paul's trying to say, knowledge is power. Do you know that? Because I believe we start to walk differently. We start to think differently. We start to like not let sin have the same hold on us. When we start to see that its power on us is not as much as we made it to be, even though we still fall prey into temptation, and it will continue to do so. Yeah, and conviction is part of that new nature. Yeah. And so when you're, uh, conviction is just one of those ways that if you have conviction about sin, that's proof of the new nature in you. You wouldn't be having conviction of sin if you just had the old nature exclusively. Oh, and I just remembered what you said last week that was so great. Uh, you were talking about how, yes, even if you're not a Christian, you can feel bad about offending someone else and, you know, like... The consequences of sin, still you can still feel bad about, especially if like I do something wrong, like if I really offend Danny or something, like I would feel bad about that. But the difference with conviction too, it's kind of like the way that David prays in Psalm 51 when he's uh, repenting of his sin after the whole Bathsheba incident. Um, his heart's 
his heart's broken, but notice the language that he does. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is how he says it. Like, against you, only you, God, have I sinned. Notice how there's a vertical way that he sees sin. Obviously, sin against other people, and I don't think he's actually downplaying that. He's accentuating the way in which sin is a vertical offense against God first and foremost. And that only happens as a believer, as someone who has a relationship with God. You don't, you don't think that way about sin unless you are in a covenant relationship with God. When it comes to sin, there's, a, there's some things I've already started to do. I, I know I only have a one-and-a-half-year-old, but like I'm already starting to think through the kind of things I want to pray over him and with him and talk to him about. So I've started to like organize like at certain ages what I want to start, how I'm going to introduce the concept of talking about Jesus and discipleship to him in the various ages and stages. I've already started to kind of prayerfully map it out. I'm not very far. But one thing I've thought about and is like, you know what? Why don't I pray that over myself? Is when it comes to talking to him about sin, I want to talk to Cairo about sin that there's no joy in that. There's no true joy in that. There might be some quick fleeting pleasure, but when it comes, man, the, but it's a trap. <laughs> but there's no joy in it. And so I was like, you know what? It's something I should start praying over myself that God, all those stupid sin I struggle with, can you rid the joy out of it? You know, and I think it's a cool prayer. And I've, I've noticed how some of my mentality has changed with it. I want, I want to keep like, I want to keep that as a prayer in my life because I think sometimes the reason why we're obviously falling into temptation is because, of course, temptation has something on that hook. If there's nothing on the hook alluring, we wouldn't fall into temptation. But if we see that it's a facade, that it's just a worm on a hook. If we see the hook through the bait. If we see the hook through the bait. <laughs> if we see the hook through the bait, we'll treat it differently. And so I, I guess I would encourage you as you think about the subject to pray that, you know, God just rid the joy out of how I view sin and temptation. Yeah, I do think it's amazing how you're right. Like, so here it is, like, like you said, Bruce, the good, uh, it's a good thing to hate sin, but it's amazing how sometimes, again, the devil could even use that as like a little trap, to like, okay, you're going to start becoming that judgmental person. And I think it's John Wesley who said something to the effect of this, like, we ought to be severe on ourselves and gracious toward others. And I think that's, depending on where you're at with how you walk and how you view yourself and your status in Christ, that could be helpful or not helpful. Because some of you might be way too hard on yourselves in terms of you don't, like reading Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for you, you're, you're wrestling with that. If you're wrestling with that, then discard what I just said about being severe on yourself. But if you know that to be true, and you know that part of our journey is also to hate sin, then you can walk with that. You know what, like, it's okay for me to be hard on myself and my sin because that's important to take seriously, but I can't apply I have to be so merciful towards others. It's, then it's a good mentality. It could be a helpful tool of how you think about it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I think that's wise. All right, I'm gonna give you a cool little word picture for this. Your chains have been broken, but have you left the cell? That is what Paul is getting at here and elsewhere when he talks about your changed relationship to sin. Your chains have been broken, but have you left the cell? Let me unpack that here. Your chains have been broken. You need that knowledge. Say again, knowledge is power. You need to know that the shackles that you were once bound by, it's a reality, are broken. They don't hold your legs. They don't hold your arms. You have freedom to move about the cabin, my friends. But not just that. Like, 
yourself, the, the, the block is open. You can walk free out of the cell. Now, unfortunately, to carry that metaphor a little bit further, a lot of us have gotten really comfortable in that cell. And it's kind of like a little bit of human nature and, and beyond the whole sinful nature stuff that like we like comfort. Yeah, like there are times like as a Christian, you can fall paralyzed to the powers of sin. Even though they don't have a hold on you, you can fall under their... So it's, it's almost like if... I don't believe you... Let me out something theologically. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Okay, there's different views on that. I respect that. If you view differently, that's totally fine. Let, let me just explain this for a second. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So I don't believe that the enemy win like... Yeah, of course, of course. If, if you, salvation. So you can't lose your salvation. So if you lost it, then you never had it is kind of a view on that. I get it. If you have different views, that's fine. Um, so if Satan, if the devil can't take your salvation from you, what's his best move, what's his best game plan against you is to paralyze you. Because he can do that. Make you useless for he can make kingdom. you useless for the kingdom. He can make you useless towards your own purpose in your life, to your, to your family, to your friends, those around you. Like, he, can make you he can paralyze you. That is something he can do. That's what the, so uh, uh, the, using the metaphors we used the past few weeks of how you're under a new jurisdiction, you're under new ownership, you're not under the law of sin and of death, verse 2 of Romans 8. You're not under the law of sin and of death. You're not under their jurisdiction, and you're not even under the governing power of the flesh. But you can be paralyzed by them from the outside because just like any enemy that's external to you, that's outside of you, they can still attack you. So my whole point, to hopefully provide even more clarity, is that the enemy is not from within, the enemy is from without, but the enemy, they're still an enemy. We use language, and this is the part that I guess that bothers me and where I have to part ways with the sentiment when Christians are often talking about it. Oh, that's just my flesh. Uh, you know, I'm just a sinner. Like, uh, you know, like, okay. Yes, you gave into the desires of sin, and uh, I guess even the flesh, but you, you act like that's the ruling force in your life that you're trying to break free from. And now we have a theological problem. And this is why, again, friends, like this isn't just all academic jargon. Yes, the, we, we're doing a lot of grunt work to get at these conclusions, but that's why we have to hash this out sometimes, because some people are paralyzed by the wrong knowledge. And if knowledge is power and the truth will set you free, as Jesus says in John 8, then the truth for tonight is that if your chains have been broken and you can walk out of that cell and walk in the new life of Christ, the new creation, and the fruit, the spirit, and whatever other New Testament metaphor or language you're going to bring in, suddenly we have an empowering presence, a.k.a. Holy Spirit, and a voluntary choice to do so. Still not easy. Please don't hear my heart. <laughs> not easy possible but some of us aren't even there do you know what i'm saying like like <laughs> some of us almost treat it like that's not even possible and that's where we're paralyzed that's where the i feel like a lot of christians can wake up and i feel like the, if, if satan can keep any theology oh i'm gonna step on some toes if the if satan can keep any theology alive in the church he's gonna keep the doctrine alive that you are a dual-natured schizophrenic person who has the flesh and the spirit in you and some days you're walking the flesh someday you're walking the spirit sometimes the christian life can become dormant when we forget that reliance of what we actually need with god but also 
the just even the joy of walking with him. And that's where uh, I think I framed it this way before, and it's something I'm going to keep doing. I, I want to use this language till it becomes almost like popular in the Christian realm. You know, the spiritual disciplines, right? Like reading your Bible, praying, etc. I want to call them spiritual delights. Like, not just discipline. So, like, I, I treat, this is a little bit of a tangent, but real quick. Like, a spiritual discipline, there's like three, I think, stages to a spiritual discipline. It starts as a duty. You kind of get into this place in the Christian walk. You're like, okay, I should read my Bible and pray. You know, just to use those two as an example. I should read my Bible and pray daily. That starts as a duty. It's kind of like, oh, I don't really want to. I'll try it. Um, and like, it starts as a duty, and then eventually it becomes like a discipline. And a discipline is kind of like at that point where, just used to an exercise analogy, okay, I've committed to working out three times a week. I, I don't fight it anymore. I go at this time, this place. I'm Boom, I'm in my rhythm. I, I, I'm in the routine. I, I sometimes feel like it. I sometimes don't, but I go even if I don't feel like it. Spiritual discipline. Spiritual delight is when it's part of your rhythm and routine, but you also, you love it. You look forward to it. That's like those people who, so using the exercise analogy again, man, that's part of their like jam. Sure. And, I think, I th- and I think there's sometimes that like part of our walk is it, it oscillates where we're at on that spectrum of the spiritual disciplines. It's okay. You don't like, it's not like graduating to it. Like I move to discipline. One day I'll move to delight. And when I'm in delight, I will never, ever feel like spiritual disciplines are a duty. Even as a pastor, like the spiritual, I'm gonna, I guess disciplines, use that language again. Sometimes it oscillates back to duty and I have to work at that. But point being like, so all of us do, but the point is that there are those stages to it. I don't know how we got on that, but I think, I think it's worth just bringing up continually. Uh, oh, here's a way to kind of tie it back in. So walking in the Spirit. So we have this new nature in us that Paul wants us to walk in. He's been talking about it and alluding to it in Romans. He's going to keep unpacking that. We need to create almost like pockets of our day when we come back to center and recalibrate and like get with God. So I, I, that would be like our one practical challenge for tonight. We have more material to get to, but like if there's nothing else as far as a practical challenge, I would have you look at your calendar and your schedule of your day and how you order your day. And I would encourage you, even if it's five or 10 minute pockets throughout the day, sometimes those will be more powerful in your day than even if you're the kind of person who's like, I'm gonna spend an hour with God at the beginning of my day. No, great, I'm great if you do. But I'm saying like sometimes spreading that, okay, I'm gonna create 10 minutes here. 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. But you have to plan it like you would any other meeting. It's amazing how good we are attending meetings that we're forced to go to for work or uh, with a friend or whatever. But like, plan your meetings with Jesus. And like, be super intentional about it. Watch the difference that makes in how you walk. And again, if, if you're doing this out of a place of like, I should probably do this religious activity, the wrong heartbeat, let's talk about that. It's this, I want it to be out of this place of this vibrant relationship with God. It's like, man, when I read about the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, who doesn't want more of those things in their life? I, I gotta get those pockets in my day that are gonna help facilitate that connection of me having more peace in my life, more patience in my day, and things like that. So that's a one challenge. You have to look at your calendar and you have to plan it. It's not going to happen. I think most of us are reactionary in our treatment of the spiritual disciplines. That's why the d- discipline language is actually helpful because it is a discipline. You have to be proactive about it. Two, this discussion though is about in a sense of like self-discovery of like knowing how you're wired, how, how that relationship with God connects. So uh, like 
for example, when I, when I talk to other couples, it's just interesting to hear how they like to hang out when they are together. You hear a broad spectrum of how some people like to hang out. Like, and so the point of that, how that relates to you and Jesus is that you're going to have to figure out what that means. You might be the kind of person who, like, every, let's say, the few 10-minute pockets of your day that you're going to schedule in, you're like, oh, I just can't wait to get back in the Word. I'm going to have a Bible commentary next to me. I'm going to be highlighting, taking notes. Awesome. You're one of my kind of people as well. Uh, if you're not, that's okay. Maybe you're the kind of person who, like, you know, I need, I have 10 minutes. Awesome. I'm going to walk outside, put on the worship music, and just... Let that happen. You're, you're almost planned spontaneity of how that moment's going to happen, but you're like having worship music help facilitate it. Great. Maybe you're like a person who's a power of prayer. I'm thinking of you, Heather. You, you always come to mind with that, so I respect that. Thank so, you. like, prayer comes very natural to you and all that. Like, yeah. cool. Like, so, in a sense, the self discovery. I mean, if you're going to harness the power of the heavens, why not? Boom. <laughs> I agree. So, like, with the self-discovery, my, uh, I'm going to bring up one more challenge to you, okay? You're going to, I want you to pay attention to more about how you thrive in your relationship with God. Here's my twofold challenge. One, find that thing that's very organic and natural to you when it comes to connecting with God. Being out in nature, for me, is one way that easily connects that. So, even, even like, just going outside, with, hanging by some trees, and, or, like, at nighttime, if I can get a view of the moon, I don't know why, guys, it does something to me. I don't know why. And I put in some worship music and some of my best like prayer times come through just moments like that. Point being, learn those things that are organic to you. But also, find those things that maybe aren't, but that maybe might. I, for example, I talk to some people who like, oh, prayer, I don't get it. Okay, fine, you can admit that prayer isn't your jam, but prayer is important, so maybe we should work on that. Maybe, we should, maybe it starts as a duty, and maybe we do work it toward being a discipline and then a delight. So find those things that are organic and keep those things going and be proactive about them. Find those things that maybe aren't, but that you want to either learn more about or challenge yourself, talk to people who it is kind of their jam. Does that make sense? Two-fold challenge for you there? I think that's good. The feelings of the spiritual life will ebb and flow, to your point. I agree. And I, it's something I feel like is a helpful thing just to out as well is like, even at some of those times that you might feel the most spiritual connection to God, maybe you're like me. And you also still sense God, like, I, I, I sense you near, but I also miss you. And this weird tension, that's good and accurate because in reality, we are also not in that manifest face-to-face -face reality that we will be in. So, again, just part of the spiritual life is still a not yet. We, we, a few weeks ago, we were talking about some things that are now and not yet. There's a lot of truths that you get to walk in now. There's no condemnation for you now. Like, your justification is sealed and secure. You, are, you will not be more justified when you are dead and before Jesus as you are right now. Those are some now truths, but then there's some not yet truths. And the spiritual experience part of it is one of those things. So even if times you're like, God, I just feel like I miss you. Like, amen. That's kind of how it is right now as well. Uh, you get some of those like little tastes of his presence and stuff and all that. But, and also as a second encouragement to that, kind of tagging along with what you're saying, Heather, is... Um, the not feeling love does not mean the absence of love. And we know this in other relationships too. You're not crazy. Like you're, you're doing the spiritual disciplines and you feel nothing. Welcome to the club sometimes. That's sometimes how it goes. Sometimes God's going to meet you and you have a profound experience. Sometimes you don't. And guess what? That spiritual discipline is still worth it because it's still forming you. Even if you're not, you don't feel it. So that's Cool. There's like one last major like section of material that we want to cover for tonight's 
uh, conversation. So paying attention to this language uh, of what Paul uses. I, I, I guess I want to draw close attention to the verbiage he's using and maybe point out some things that are easy to miss in just looking at your English text. Is that fair? Fair to say? Okay. Paul utilizes this verb, oiketo. Oiketo. It does mean to dwell, to reside. He uses uh, in verses 9 and 11. And the other form of this word, so that's a verb, the noun is oikos. Now, this is all super technical, but I'm going to unpack this, okay? Uh, this has a diverse range of meaning depending on context, but typically in the Old Testament, in the Greek te translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, this is often used as a word referring to the house of God or phrases like that. So again, if oiketo means dwell, reside, oikos means house, home, uh, in the Old Testament, it's often used as referring to like the house of God, which is aka the temple. So the Old Testament clearly reveals that heaven's God's dwelling, right, and that the earth, no earthly building can contain him. But the tabernacle and then the temple were visible symbols of where God chose to abide. Um, and you can see examples like this all over. If you want examples, I'd be more than glad to send you them. But even in 1 Kings chapter 8, so this is right when Solomon had built the temple. He's like consecrating it, like celebrating it, they're having all this. In the Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, they're using oikos and related words like all over the place to describe how the temple is God's house and how he fills and resides that. Uh, and I think this is really important because the New Testament picks up on this and Paul does too. And Paul, being someone who's saturated in his Old Testament, both the Hebrew and Greek translation of it, I think he's doing something here for his Roman Christians, kind of referring to them as the house of God. He's doing something like this. Paul champions this all throughout. You can see this also in 1 Corinthians 3.9, 316, 619, 2 Corinthians 6.16. And my point is just to overwhelm you with the fact that this is common, where the individual and the community of Christians are depicted as God's temple. And we've heard that before. I don't think it's like a new concept for a lot of like Christians, but I think it's something that's still worth paying attention to. So on your handout, you have this little comparison in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and Romans 8.9. And so it's just one of those times that like it's fun in this setting to show you kind of like the homework of how we arrive at a conclusion, right? So that way you're not just saying, oh, I've heard a pastor, I've heard someone say this. I want to show you how this works, because if you see it, even if you can't read Greek, in the yellow highlighter, you see oike, it's from oikeo, uh, and then you, in the English translation, you see how that says dwells, right? Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.16, almost in Romans 8.9. Well, if you read 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then in Romans 8.9, after all, the Spirit of God dwells in in you. These are super similar in all the verbiage I highlighted in more colors, uh, stuff like that that's going on. It's so close in the syntax and the word choices here. What is Paul doing? What is Paul doing? He is completely reconfiguring the way that we think about temple language around the people of God indwelt by the Spirit. So like if the tabernacle and then the temple was the place where an intersection point of like the cosmos happens, like heaven and earth God and man, life above and life below, intersect at the place of the temple. Well, Christians then become that intersection. They become the temple presence of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is like a privilege of the new covenant that I think <laughs> we have the lullaby effect for. We brought this up for a few weeks, so whenever this happens, we'll call it out. 
Um, the, to remind you, the lullaby effect is when you've heard something often, either because you've grown up around the church or the Bible, or you've heard it said a lot of times as Christian jargon, and it's lost its power, its luster. Oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah, we're the temple of God. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. No, like, guys, friends, like, that Paul's doing, this is fresh. This is, like, incredible in, like, the redemption history that God would choose to because all religions, this wasn't unique to uh, Judaism to have like a temple. That wasn't unique. Like other religions had that. What became unique was that God would choose to then mobilize his temple in that people, you would become the temple of God. Like that the, the temple presence that once was in that place that people would travel with their families. They didn't do vacations like we do nowadays. To make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to worship, to participate in the festivals, to see the place where God's presence resided in a very unique way. For that now to be true of every single Christian, just by no merit of your own, but by a gift of grace of being in Christ, that that presence, that people from all over were drawn to, now resides in you, guys. We've been talking about tonight. If there's no other theme that knowledge is power, that's tonight's theme. That the temple presence of God has taken up residence in you in the Holy Spirit means that you are sacred space. And so that's why, again, Paul has such a high view of the body, and Paul takes so seriously what we do in the body and how we live our lives because you are a temple. You are the house of God. And he, that's why in my translation of this, I say uh, that not just that the spirit dwells in you, but the spirit dwells at home in you. So because again, oikos, this was your common everyday term for house or home. And so oikeo, to like live, this is like your language used like residing in like a home type setting. So I'm just trying to point that out clear as day, that the spirit of God lives like at home in you is something that I think, at least for me, take super for granted that we have become the uh, house of God. That's like the last thing on your fill. And by the way, that Christians indwelt by the spirit of God become the house of God. It's so easy for that to become Christian jargon that has no meaning. And that's where we, we, we frankly, even myself, we, we all need the spirit's illuminating power for that to not just be words on a page. If there's nothing else that makes sense with what we're saying here, it's this is not merely a matter of status, but of actual power. And that's where it comes to a head a little bit into how we're going to move further into Romans 8 as well. Because if this, is, this isn't just a status. So like, for example, let's make a contrast. <clears throat> the fact that you are justified, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that's a status. But the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and has taken up temple residence, the house of, you are the house of God, uh, individually, corporately, all that, that's a power. Status power. So it's not merely just a status that a label has changed for you. There's plenty of things we've talked about in this setting that our label changes. You are now holy and all these other things, right? You're holy in Christ. All these things are a status. This is an actual difference of power that is inside of you. A person, of course, the Holy Spirit, uh, but him and his personal power that is inside of you. And that's why let, let's, uh, the last thing we'll mention here is that if we talk about it as a now and a not yet, the now is that the Holy Spirit already lives inside of you. That's what's true now. What's the not yet? Well, it's talked about in these verses, uh, starting in verse 10. Now, since Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, 
the reality, you're going to die. Sorry to break it to you if you didn't know that tonight. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, and since the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells at home in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will bring new life to your mortal bodies through his indwelling Spirit in you. Well, that's resurrection language, uh, just in case all the cool little fancy ways of saying it uh, bypassed you. That's just the promise of the not yet, of the future resurrection. That, okay, that indwelling presence uh, of God, guess what? He's not going to let you just corrupt and become some, oh, you're just going to be a spiritual being forever and all that, the body, whatever, decays and all that. Like, no, resurrection. You will experience, have a glorified new body. You can read a lot more about that in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can read the way Paul spends like 50 verses like talking about the resurrected body. So, pretty important to Paul. You can read it there uh, if you want more material uh, there. But that's kind of the uh, where we needed to get to for tonight and how that's going to set up the next week as we continue to go very slowly but deliberately through Romans chapter 8 that we would summarize that there is not just a change of status, which is where Romans 8 began, but there's a change of actual power. You are not in the flesh. That governing power is not the one that is ruling over you. The ruling power, the governing power inside of you is the Holy Spirit, who is none other than the temple presence of God living and residing in you, giving you a new power to walk in that life.